Ladies rise for their majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals. Three cheers for His Majesty the King. Welcome back. This is Royally Obsessed. I'm Roberta. And I'm Rachel. And we're in person. Woohoo! This is so great <laughs> sitting across from you. I know. I feel like this is so special. And I realize how rare it is. Truly, we've only done this once, right? Once. No, twice. Wild. Twice. Twice? What was Once for the docuseries and once before that. That's right. Yes. Oh my gosh. <gasps> so special. So much to celebrate, but we have a big episode coming up. But first, follow us on Instagram if you haven't already at Royally Obsessed Podcast. Also send us an email, info at gallerypodcast.com. We've gotten some great emails about your takes on Spare Harry's memoir. So much to come in the episode about that as well. But first, Rachel, what else are we talking about? So we are really, really thrilled to welcome Omid Scobie back to the podcast this week. He is, of course, the author of Finding Freedom and the upcoming Endgame, Inside the Royal Family and the Monarchy's Fight for Survival. That's out in August. That's a dramatic title. Dramatic title. We can't wait. We are also talking about Kate and William's first appearance post-spare. We have a compelling interview that Prince Harry did with Bryony Gordon, a Princess Anne sighting, so much more. And we are going to be talking a lot more about spare in the coming episodes, but we're just kind of devoting this time to our conversation with Omid, and we'll get into that more next week. Yes. But how did you spend the long weekend, Rachel? That's the oh, most important cheers? thing. Oh, yeah. Let's cheers. Our in royal person. refreshment in person. This is an exciting moment. And now it's time for the weekly royal cocktail. I'm oh, having, if I can get the can open, my fake nails don't open these cans. Oh, very. fake nails. They look really nice. <laughs> my acrylic. Uh, first time getting acrylic, it was an experience. So. I have this cucumber mint vodka soda. I have a rosé I rose meant to chill spritzer. these better for us. I'm sorry, Roberta. No, rosé vodka spritzer. I don't think this sounds like it's going to be very good. But. Ooh, ooh, let's see. Oh, it could, it could use a little ice. It could use that also a woke me ice. up. That was that's a heavy on the vodka okay. kind of drink. Okay, it'll get us through. But tell me, as These we're sipping, how was your weekend? How was Miami? It was so wonderful. We did have one last day of cold weather that came. It was the last day, so it was fine. So the first two days we were at the pool at the beach. It was. Amazing. How was your long weekend? It was great. It was just really full, if that makes sense. Like, I think that it was just one of those weekends where you felt like you got time to relax, you got time to do stuff, see friends. Really, Read really awesome. Book. Read the book, savor the book, go I slowly feel, through the book. I know. I felt like I had a lot of time to savor it, especially on the plane ride down and listening to it on Audible and being able to do different things while listening to it. Like I would be folding laundry or I'd be packing for our trip. So it, it's just like so, so nice to I'm glad we're not rushing each other. Like I think that no. it's like we need to go at our own pace and, and we'll get into all I of it, of it's course. So it's too heavy to rush through. Yeah. It's, it's like way too much. And I feel like the reflecting on it, I actually need to pause and not hear him speak and think about my thoughts and my feelings toward what he's saying. So Absolutely. All right. Well, we have a great listener email from Chris. They write, with all the info swirling around spare, I just wanted to say that it shouldn't be an either-or situation. We can have sympathy for the situation Harry felt he was in and still admire what the Wales family is doing to present a future for the monarchy. They add that Harry's comment to Anderson Cooper when asked why not renounce the titles was too flip. Harry said, what good would that do? Which is kind of a non-answer, Chris's opinion. Chris's opinion is that it would clearly say you're not interested in being working royals and might make it all seem less hypocritical if they remove their titles or renounce them. Finally, Chris adds, I hope Harry is being honest with himself about why he'll keep the title and why he wrote this book. It will finance the life he wants, and I understand that and would possibly do it myself in the same position, but I hope Harry admits that to himself. Do you agree, Roberta? How do you feel about that? 
I somewhat agree because I do feel like the bottom line is that, yes, Harry needs the money for security. So that is why he's doing this. But I don't know. I do feel like Harry is right. What good would it do to remove the titles? It doesn't feel like it changes a lot. And it also, it's not like, I don't think that they're really trading on their titles as much as people say. I do feel like people will still be curious about what Harry has to say regardless yeah. if he's the Duke of Sussex or not. I know. I think that he made it clear he did talk more about this question to Michael Strahan, and it's sort of what good would that do? You know, Strahan pressed him about the hypocrisy. Um, and I think I'm just of two minds. Like, he really can't escape the royal titles, whether he has them or not. Exactly. You know, but exactly. also if he has no plans to go back, I think you and I talked about this too. Why keep them? It's yeah. just, you know. It's one of those questions, but great email. Thank you for writing in. Now, this week in royal history. And now, this week in royal history. One year ago, Prince Andrew was stripped of his royal titles and HRH status. It was January 13th, 2022. It feels so weird to say 2022 was a year ago. I still can't say 2023. I'm struggling to. It's always that January problem. I had to like kind of flashback and remember the context of all this. It was such a roller coaster ride at the beginning of 2022. We think 2023 has been a roller coaster <laughs> ride. 2022, we had these gorgeous photos of Kate's 40th birthday, those portraits, they were stunning. And then the Andrew scandal right after, which uh, a judge in New York said that the case against him could go through and move ahead. And here's a little newscast from that. Buckingham Palace has announced that Prince Andrew is returning his royal and military titles to the Queen and will no longer be referred to as His Royal Highness in any official capacity. It comes after a court ruling in the US yesterday, which left the Prince facing a civil case later this year against Virginia Giffray, who says she was sexually assaulted by him two decades ago when she was a teenager. He has consistently denied the allegations. So that was from the BBC that evening. I kind of remember where I was, actually. I was jogging. I was still in Florida after the Christmas break, and I remember this. And I flash back to our recollections and reactions about this time. We were just stricken by how long it took to do this, to take away his titles, because I think, you know, Virginia came forward in 2015. That disastrous Newsnight interview with Emily Matlas was in late 2019. This is January 2022, and it was finally, it felt like the queen, there was no other choice. Well, and I also feel like it was really overshadowing the Jubilee, and I think that was really probably the fundamental goal was like, we need to take care of this. It needs to be handled. And that's a horrible reason it took that much to finally take care of it. And speak, like, talk about roller coasters, the Platinum Jubilee, then the Queen's passing. Like, what a year We've last year was. We've been through a lot. A lot. A lot. With no end in sight, it feels, going into this year. I know. And just contrasting this to Prince Harry and his treatment, I think it's mentioned toward the end of the book, you know, no one had contemplated taking away Andrew's security, and yet Harry's was pulled immediately when they left the country. And so I think that's a big difference. We also saw Andrew during the Christmas walk at Sandringham. Is that, you know, a path to rehabilitation and of his I image? talked about that whole sort of exactly. lifestyle tip about standing on a oh, newspaper. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> felt yes. so wrong. I'm in like, don't give me that. I don't rehabilitate Andrew. No. I loved the mention of Andrew and Spare, though, that Megan thought he was just the queen's assistant. I she was like, was who's flabbergasted. That guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shout out, Megan, for not really knowing anything. I mean, about hilarious or life. possible burn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we have that movie about Andrew in the works called Scoop, and it's based on the interview and everything that went into it for Newsnight. We don't have a release date for that. Not though, a right? release date that I've checked. I recently checked. So and no, Hugh Grant, but... not a part of it. Never. We learned that, right? That I was all hope. just rumors. No, I'm like still holding out for that. I'm I think it totally was holding out for all Hugh Grant. R- rumors there. Yeah. All right. Well, we want to get into the news before we chat with Omid. 
the big, you know, kind of focus that non-Sussex related focus was that we saw William and Kate. We also saw Charles and Camilla this week. Everyone was really anticipating Kate and William's first appearance of the year, but it was also their first appearance post-spare. It was kind of uh, business as usual, I guess, is yeah. how you would best describe it. It was really, you know, we we saw them. More of at, the same. More of the same. We saw them at the Royal University Liverpool Hospital, then the Open Door Charity in Birkenhead talking about a mental health focus for teens. There was a question lobbed at William from reporters. What's your reaction to spare? It was a massively windy day. So he could say that he didn't hear it or he could say that he chose to ignore it. I think a major contrast to what we saw with William post-Oprah, right? When he he said, we're very much not a racist family. So he was much more prepared for those questions to come, didn't say anything, or it was just the wind. I thought what was interesting was the headline was that Kate in context was talking with the open door teens about how a lot of different therapies work you know there's a variety of ways to talk about mental health and they were in she was in a conversation about how music therapy actually works really well too but she added the line talking therapies don't work for some people they're not for everyone and that was what the tabloids ran with the next day that she put that it wasn't a direct comment on spare. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I feel like that's so interesting in light of um, we're about to talk about this right after the the Wales' appearance. But um, Bryony Gordon's little interview with Harry, she says that Harry says that William thinks therapy is all kind of like psychobabble and stuff. So that's just like yes, very yes. like it, the tension between these two things is just too I much. I know. And I like how Bryony talks about that. It was a, the- a feeling in the 80s. It's so dated. You know, we're almost 40 years later, like it's a very, yeah. very real thing to talk about therapy. But I don't believe that Kate was specifically addressing it. It's like yeah. you take one quote, you take it out of context, right. you run with it, and it's not fair. Um, but the matching outfits, what did you think? United front? I feel like not only matching William and Kate, but also Kate matching herself the next day. Today we've seen her out at a nursery. It's almost the exact same dress in a different color. There's orange and then there was dark green. Definitely united front, definitely a strong message. Uh I don't know. I feel like the coat was beautiful, but it's hard to kind of talk about fashion when we still don't have a I don't I feel like we need some kind of response from the palace. I just yes. feel like I'm on tender hooks with yes. this. I thought it was interesting because we also of course saw Camilla and Charles out. I can't shake the revelations from Harry about Camilla, even if he gave a lot of context to why she's taken that approach because that's what's been trained. But we saw her at the University of Aberdeen today. Everyone's been out and about. I do want to tack on Zara and Mike. Have we not? We haven't really texted about this, Roberta, but this Magic Millions thing is – they're living their best life in Australia, it seems. And we saw the return of Mike wearing the fascinator. You know, that was such a big thing at the Jubilee and got a lot of press. But I'm a little bit like, hmm, why are we doing that again? <laughs> I'm a little bit like, I'm, I'm sorry. I love horses. But like when it's all about horses, I kind of tune it out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Especially because I feel like I have Mike overload a little bit with Me the too. reality show stuff. So I just like don't really pay attention. Can to I say much? one crazy thing? Yeah, no, one say, of the images say. that he posted, <laughs> I wanted to get your take. He looks a lot like that character in White Lotus. Oh, my God. Which one? Adam DeMarco? No, Cameron. No, no, no. no Ethan. The one... <laughs> <laughs> the one be, that, I'm gonna name um, that messes things up that she goes off with, the, like the guy that's with the... the... These gays are trying to murder me? That yeah, guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. um, he's in Pride and Prejudice too. What's his name? 
But there's a picture that Mike Tyndall posted where I'm like, I just see this uncanny resemblance. And I just wanted to get your thoughts. It's just like, I don't know why. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wait, he does look like him. That's funny. Sorry, tangent. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. I love White Lotus, though. So we could talk about that all day. All right. Just a quick side note that this interview with Bryony Gordon in The Telegraph was published this week. So she flew to Montecito. She interviews Harry on January 7th. And it's also the launch of her Substack, which flashback to her podcast launch. The podcast is called Mad World. Harry helped launch that as well in April 2017. And she describes them as Instagram friends or working friends. So they're not super close, but they do have a working relationship. And so he invites her to his home. There's a very detailed description of their lodgings in Montecito, and it feels very The Cut-esque. She writes, the house is a sanctuary surrounded by acres of greenery, complete with chickens, a play area, teepee, so lovely that I find myself jokingly asking if I can move into it. I'm taken to a Finca-style guest house where I find a generous spread of crudite alongside umpteen types of tea, served, of course, in the finest china. Soft music tinkles in the background candles flicker. Do you feel like you're back at the cut? I do. I do. The The jam mentioned at the end where she was gifted that when she left. I was like, wow, this is a consistent thing. They have a pile of jam for journalists. I did really like the comfortability that comes across. I Mm -hmm. mean, they really have known each other, even if it's a professional working relationship. I like that she could give the context of how she felt the last time she saw Harry in January 2020 and how different his demeanor feels now and how at peace he seems. Well, and that's where her sub stack, it's called Bits and Bobs with Bryony. I feel like that comes in and is so valuable because she actually does the full, she posts the full Q&A with Harry, just like the transcript of their interview to her sub stack. And so I encourage everyone to read it if they, you know, want the extra bit after they read the Telegraph interview. But the standout quote, um, I think that everyone's talking about, there's a few. So one is that Harry's worried one of William's kids will end up like Harry, and that's why he's doing all of this. Another is that he says, quote, this is not about trying to collapse the monarchy. This is about trying to save them from themselves. I know I'll get crucified by numerous people for saying that. And finally, this one struck me as the most important. Harry says, the book was 800 pages, cut down in half to 400. He said, that there are some things that have happened, especially between me and my brother, and to some extent between me and my father, that I just don't want the world to know because I don't think they would ever forgive me. Yeah. (laughs) What are those, what are in those pages? We need to know. Yeah, it's just fascinating to hear him say that because, you know, we feel like the altercation info was really, really hard to read and process with our kind of we like the Waleses. We like the Sussexes. It's yeah. hard to not feel something when you read that. And so to know that Harry did censor himself, it's it's a little bit staggering. And is that a, is that him holding a gun to the royal family's head? Because that doesn't feel like this has gotten him anywhere in terms of he wants reconciliation, but he writes a book. And that is obviously the most egregious thing he could do in this family is write a book about them. And yet yeah, it felt empty threat like or maybe not an empty threat. Yeah, I mean, he says what I'd really like is some accountability and apology to my wife. So he spells out his terms. And so far, there's been no one coming to the table from the other side. All right. Now I am so thrilled to welcome Omid Scobie back onto the podcast. He's been on this show numerous times. We're so lucky to have him again to talk about Spare, Harry's memoir, the fallout, everything. Here is our chat with him. 
Roros, we're welcoming a familiar face back to the podcast this week and one that we hope can help us make sense of the royal world post-spare. Omid Scobie, author of Finding Freedom and the upcoming Endgame, Inside the Royal Family and the Monarchy's Fight for Survival, which comes out in August, is here. Omid, welcome back to the show, to the podcast. Hi, ladies. How are you doing? We're good. Thanks is this week a us. little quieter for you than the last? How's that? How's it going? It's a, do you know what I was saying to someone just before we uh, sat down to, to tape this? That it feels like 40 years ago that that copy of Spare leaked in Spain. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> and we were all figuring out what the hell was going on. We know I so much ready more. too when yeah. that leak dropped. I remember Roberta and I, I think I had just in my type A, like my type A self had put it in the calendar January 10th and I was planning very much around that. And so that leak and then the subsequent leaks and the translation just really made January quite a blur. It really did. January exactly. so far, I should say. Well, what a month though. I mean, we've had, you know, January is usually a quiet time of the year for the royals. I feel like they don't usually return to engagements until the the year is sort of fully in swing and you know Harry came in literally swinging. So, <laughs> yes, <laughs> so yes. true. Well, speaking of those leaks, I mean, we saw so many headlines before the book was even out about what was in it. You know, one of the biggest things being that fight between William and Harry. But now since reading the book, what do you feel like are some of the more um, revelatory or surprising bits that you've come across? I think for me, as someone that's covered this, just like you guys, for such a long time, you know, 2011 was my first royal engagement. And I think there is nothing more of a treat than having something that gives you that like ultimate look behind the curtain. I think Harry brought to life what being a royal is like behind the scenes in a way that I don't think we've really experienced in this sort of current generation of royals. We've always guessed, we've relied on sources and friends, former palisades or people speaking on behalf of, but it's never from the horse's mouth. And so, sure, this book answers a lot of the kind of unfinished questions about the couple's departure from their royal lives, uh, the relationship between William and Harry, which I don't think any of us realised was quite as sort of fractured for that long as it actually right. was. But when you put all of that to one side, there's also just the great details about what it's like at Balmoral and, you know, what it was like growing up for William and Harry as kids, you know, the fish fingers under the silver cloches. And, you know, I love all of that stuff because ultimately that's what, you know, the, the likes of you and you and I do all the time is we try and guess what's going on. It's what shows like The Crown do, you know, they they bring it to life using materials that are already in the public domain. But for once, we actually have it on the record from a member of the royal family. And I think that with all the hysteria and the pearl clutching and the in the tabloids, we've kind of forgotten how much of a treat this moment actually is. Yeah, that's so true. It feels like sometimes the more mundane the detail, the more interesting it is to you or I because we're so in the weeds with it all the time. I love that. Yeah. I know. I feel like even just the Queen Victoria statue that William and Harry, you know, he mentions they bow to at Balmoral when they walk by. That was right at the beginning of the book. But I... I feel like that's something that sticks out. It's just such a delightful bit of specificity. And that visualization is, for royal watchers, just really, really powerful. 
for all of the sort of conversations that we've heard and had about whether Harry attacked his family or, you know, how he's sort of portraying them in the book. And I think a lot of people felt that it was quite unfair, you know, to reveal so much about his family members. I would argue that so much of that commentary comes from people that were relying on the tabloid coverage or who hadn't actually read the book. Because for me, and this was always my takeaway, was that I felt that in many places it was actually a really sympathetic portrayal of the sort of struggles of life for any member of the royal family. And I think, you know, when you look at Charles's portrayal in the book, for example, I think Harry really paints a portrait of him in a very sympathetic light. It's this sort of misunderstood man, with this uh, creature of sort of funny habits, his bath time routines and taking his teddy bear around the world. But that speaks to so much of Charles's life that we already knew about, his sort of unfinished childhood that, that he himself spoke about when he sat down with Jonathan Dimbleby for a very similar kind of warts and all book. And, you know, I think, if anything, it was a book that I think Spare has a great deal of heart. I think it paints a really sad picture of what the reality of those relationships are like between Harry and his family members now. But it also helps us understand why they have become like that. I don't think Harry is always pointing the finger at the family members themselves. I think it's actually a really sympathetic portrait of his father, why he is who he is, and also the very sort of unnatural circumstances he has to operate in. You know, as Harry says himself, he tried his best as a single father, but it wasn't the life that he was cut out for. Do you feel that that sympathy toward Charles and toward other members of the family, it's kind of a product of the institution, does that apply to Camilla as well? What was your reaction to her characterization in the book? You know, listen, certainly Camilla comes out of the book worse off. There's no denying that. And I think a lot of that is based on her relationship or the relationship that Harry sees Camilla having with the British media and members of the press. And, you know, look, a lot of that's already well documented. We know about her relationships with certain key figures in the industry, her relationships with Daily Mail editors, the lunches with Piers Morgan, you know, this is all on already on record. I think Harry kind of spells it out. And whilst it does, doesn't particularly paint her in the most positive of lights, it is the reality of who she is and how she conducts her life. But he also talks about the fact that he feels really sorry for her, for the fact that she's stuck in this situation where she does have to sort of claw her way up to prove herself, to fight off the wolves that were so desperate to bring her down in the first place. So again, it goes back to the kind of grim reality of being a member of the royal family and how impossible that is, particularly when you bring in the British press. Absolutely. Mm. One thing we wanted to get your take on, you know, for us, it's like, for the world, we had the docuseries and then the book. And some people, even staunch Harry and Meghan supporters, were experiencing and are experiencing Sussex fatigue. Do you think that the couple had any control over these two massive projects back to back? Do you have any criticisms of their approach with that? I mean, in many ways, how can a regular person not have Sussex fatigue at this point? I mean, 
Listen, for us, we're engaged in this story. We followed it every step of the way. I almost feel it's like my duty to follow it for every step of the way. But I can understand how general members of the public have just had enough of hearing about the royal dramas in general. And, and listen, I sympathise with the Sussexes in, in some ways because they're now only getting to join the story at this very late stage. You know, for many years, they weren't able to share their side. For many years, they watched others try and tell versions of it, or they sat back and watched things reported about them that they didn't agree with or didn't feel were a fair representation of themselves. So now they've come in at the kind of final hour, should we say, with their versions of events, with their stories, and filling in the gaps that we didn't know about. But of course, it comes after years and years of coverage. So I think people are starting to get a little tired of the story in general. But I don't think that that also deserves them massively, because I think they're also keen to move on. You know, I think that they've wanted to kind of put a period at the end of this alongside their version of events and then move forward with the projects and the work that they wanted to do in the first place. But, you know, I've said this a couple of times over the past weeks. I do think that they're in a kind of slightly risky spot where they need to be aware of the fact that this has to be kind of the line drawn under it. Otherwise, I think people will start to feel, even the, the most staunchest of supporters will start to feel a frustration at not seeing the couple move forwards or find that happiness that they talk about or to not feel the anger that Harry says he doesn't feel anymore. Well, let's see that. So mm -hmm. I think that now is the time where they also have to move forwards as well. Otherwise, they'll become synonymous with dr drama for the rest of their lives, just like the royal family struggle with. And I don't think that that's a, a place that anyone particularly wants to be in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's such a good point. And one of the biggest criticisms about them is the, you know, the fact that Harry constantly craves privacy and um, he's, you know, been subjected to so much from the press for so much of his life that he he just wants privacy. And, but he, yeah, in his book, he shares, you know, private conversations with family members or text exchanges. Do you feel like he crossed a line or is, you know, what are your thoughts there? It's a tricky one. I think, listen, if I gave that much away about my family, I think they probably would not be talking to me for some time, even <laughs> if there was no sort of rocky history in the past. You know, I think people do genuinely want to protect their privacy, particularly royals who have so little to keep for themselves anyway. But I also see Harry as someone that for 38 years, the most private details about his life, and as we hear in the book, you know, the time his schoolmates shave his head, it ends up front page news in the mirror, like not one moment, even as a child, was, was kept sacred. And so for him, it's lost that same meaning that I think that it has for us. For him, it's now a point of like, all right, you want to talk about the injury I had at school? Let me tell you how I got it. You want to talk about my endowment? <laughs> Let me tell you what it actually <laughs> is. Cool. You know, yes. <laughs> I, I All think... the ways people described it was, <laughs> I guess, a bright spot of the last yeah. week. Hilarious. <laughs> I remember a time where 
you know, in my early days of uh, I, my background's entertainment news. And so I was forever at events and clubs in London. And I had no connection to the royal story. I didn't cover it, wasn't interested in it. I was often out at the same places as Prince Harry. And so I would see him at places. And actually, quite honestly, at the time, it was an eye roll because when Harry was there, it meant there was less space in the VIP area or you <laughs> couldn't go to the bathroom every time you wanted to because when he went, it would be completely closed off. Small stuff like that. But I remember any girl that he was ev- would even talk to for a second, there would sometimes be people waiting outside the club to ask people, what did you see? What was Harry up to? And they would wow. offer girls money to give kiss and tells on him. Girls mm. who hadn't even spent the night with him or hadn't even really hung out with him were still mm. being offered money to tell stories about romps with Harry. So when you've got a press that wants to go that far in giving kind of dirty, tawdry gossip, I can understand why Harry wants to at least give his his version of that stuff. So sure, we're going to get the story about his virginity because actually papers tried to tell versions of that story already. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if we would be in this position today if they hadn't have gone so far in their level of intrusiveness and level of fictional intrusiveness that sort of plagued so much of his teenage years, childhood and and early adulthood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems that his you know, invading others' privacy, the text exchanges or the private conversations, all for correcting the narrative around all of these things. So, Yeah, and reading that, I think, again, going through the book, you're kind of almost fact-checking. Like, for me, some of those earlier years, the incidents from that time were blurry to me. I was growing up along a similar timeline as Harry, and so it's like, to be able to go back and be like, oh, my gosh, this is hot, awful, and he has the chance to set the record straight is is really powerful for him. Mm-hmm. One thing, you know, your prediction, will we see the Sussexes at the coronation or some sort of hybrid role in the future with all the interviews, many of which were, you know, I feel like Stephen Colbert, it was very fun to see Harry kind of doing all those different formats. I think he did kind of float that. I thought the quote where he said, I think it was to... Anderson Cooper, I hope I'm right, about, you know, it would be fantastic for them. It would be great for us to reconcile. It would be fantastic for them. So what is your perspective on that? I was surprised to hear even an ounce of interest in some kind of future with the royal family. Or maybe I should rephrase it. I don't know if there was interest <laughs> there, but there was certainly wasn't ruled out. You know, I think, I don't remember Harry's exact response, but it was kind of like, We'll see what the future brings. To me, given everything they've experienced, I would have thought the door is firmly shut um, on that side of things. Reconciliation? Absolutely. I can understand why Harry wants it. I've been writing for a couple of years now how all he's wanted is sort of acknowledgement and accountability of the things that they experienced during their lives living here. That said, I know that they were crushed when they lost their Commonwealth Youth Ambassador roles. And I could totally imagine a world in which should that ever become available or on offer to them again, they would probably want to consider it because it was such a sort of perfectly fitting role for them. Does that mean we'll see them cutting a ribbon on a wet Wednesday in Scunthorpe? I don't think so. I don't think there's any interest in that as well. I think that they're looking at sort of far grander ambitions. Um, 
But at the same time, it was interesting. And I think that gives us an insight into perhaps how firmly entrenched Harry is and that kind of institutional way of thinking and the, the, the life that he comes from. It's clearly harder than I thought for him to fully detach himself from it because it is so much part of his identity. I'm curious to know if Megan feels the same way, but I doubt we'll ever hear her talk on that subject anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting because like I'm trying to have a little bit of a digital diet with all the spare onslaught, as Harry mentioned, um, that that's a positive thing. But I think, you know, I saw something pop up over the weekend that there's talk of a reconciliation meeting that Charles might organize. And if anyone can do it, the sort of, you know, according to sources, if anyone can make this reunion happen and get through this, it's Charles can. So I just, you know, I wasn't sure what your take on that was. Yeah, I feel like, Omen, on the flip side, that do you think the royal family would ever release a public statement about Harry's revelations? I'm not surprised that we haven't heard anything on the record from them. And I know I, I wrote about this this week. We've heard from a lot of commentators and experts that what we're seeing and witnessing is a dignified silence, a dignified no response from the royal family. But I think listen, if anyone's been around the beat long enough, you know that silence is never really silence. It's just people talk off the record. And so Mm -hmm. that's the source quotes that we read and the the hundreds of articles that have been covered or written by royal correspondents since the release of Spare. Uh, But what was interesting was actually the story you talk about, this possibility that Charles May be a driving force and some kind of reconciliatory moment. I'd actually heard from palace sources at the start of this week, as have some of the other royal correspondents who I've spoken to, who have all been told off the record that there's no truth in that story, that they were really surprised that this story had gone out there because no conversation has actually gone that far. And they felt that maybe it was kind of more of a projection of how people around members of the royal family feel it might go, but it's not based on anything that family members have even said privately. And I know on the Sussexes side, they certainly aren't aware of any kind of conversations like that too. And and I think the dust really hasn't settled. You know, Mm -hmm. I think most people haven't even finished reading the book yet. Sure. I mean, tabloid journalists have but in yeah. Spanish. But Spanish. Uh, for most people, you know, and I, would, I, I could even imagine a world in which Charles may not even want to read the book for some time. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it, as a parent, it's probably quite painful to read about, at the very least, the struggles and difficulties that your child's been through that you may have been aware of, but didn't fully acknowledge because it was uncomfortable for you as well. And, you know, I think that there's a there's a rather unusual dynamic in that family of kind of, well, if I suffered, you must suffer mm-hmm. too. It's it's quite unhealthy in a way, but we've, we've seen that from generation to generation and we've heard that over the years and in other books that have been released, including Charles's in, in 94, that authorised biography. Um. And I would imagine that this moment may be a bit of a wake-up call for some of the family members reading this. But I also think that people will remain incensed with Harry for doing this for for some time. And I thought it was almost kind of a rose-tinted wish 
of Harry's to want reconciliation to happen so soon after this book, because I think that tempers need to fray and, and calm down. And I think just the very act of doing the book is is enough to kind of see that red mist that Harry talks about, mm-hmm. probably in the eyes of most of the family members right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for Absolutely. now it seems those reconciliation reports are all wishful thinking. Um, but this all feels like the perfect segue into your next book, Omid. What can you share about Endgame out August 1st of this year? You know, that's a very good question. Um, <laughs> there is nothing easy about writing a book um, on a story that keeps on moving. You know, this book started in the Elizabethan era. We're now in the Carolean era. Um, so much has happened during that time. And of course, Harry's release of Spare does play a big role in the book as well. You know, I, you know and I actually say early on in, in, in the book that I don't particularly feel that Harry and Meghan play much of a role in that story of the future of the royal family. But I think the issues that the couple raised that have yet to be addressed more generally, um, you know, in incidents and accounts of misogyny and unconscious bias and um, image manipulation, that problematic relationship with the press, you know, these are things that I think do alongside issues of the past, the history of slavery and colonialism, you know, I think all of these do need to be addressed at some point. This is ultimately a family that is supposed to be the image of the perfect family um, to the UK and the Commonwealth that has time and time again stumbled when it comes to actually proving that. And, you know, Charles, I think, whilst some may call this a dignified silence, I find it very interesting that this also is a show of his leadership or or lack of in this situation. He's had two or so years to convene and command his own family, to take control of the grievances of his own son that he's just been asked to sort of listen to and take some accountability for, but again, avoided that. But I think that those moments also speak to what we see time and time again with the royal family. I think a lot of people assume that Endgame and me even calling it that is me declaring that there's some kind of end, gruesome end on the horizon. I'm merely stating that I think we've reached a pivotal moment for the royal family where now more than ever they have to prove themselves as relevant, as um, able to uphold the values that they promote promote, and that the Queen was able to do for, for 70 years. Um, and I think that more and more people are beginning to question that. And I think since the death of Queen Elizabeth II, people are more comfortable having conversations about the future of the royal family in a way that I think almost felt insensitive in the past because it also meant talking about the death of, of the monarch. So I really want Endgame to just sit in the centre of that conversation to address many of the issues of the recent years, but also look forwards to what the plans of the royal family are. And I'm speaking with people who are currently part of those. And I've been almost surprised that there are individuals who've been willing to help with this book after the drama surrounding Finding Freedom and certain people saying they would never talk to me again. I find that things have been quite different as I've been reporting or pulling reporting together for Endgame. But I also go back on my own reporting over the 
past 11 years or so now, I think any royal correspondent will say that they have sat on stories or avoided talking about certain things because they've been afraid of losing their access. And for me, this is probably the most fearless I have been and will be in my reporting on the royal family because I am no longer in a position to, I guess, care about that. Mm. So I think there's a bigger story to tell here. And I really want to be able to tell that in Endgame. Um, it's not finished yet. Like I said, the story <laughs> keeps the story keeps changing. But I think that people will be really surprised when they get hold of it. That A, this is not a book about the Sussexes. In fact, the, the play of the Sussexes in the book is, is much less than people would expect. Um, but I think it also dives into conversations that many of us especially the sort of long-term royal correspondents, have often avoided because that access is just so delicious. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's honestly a great transition to, into the question we wanted to kind of wrap up with is that, you know, we are an audience. This podcast, we're very royally obsessed. We've followed it for a long time. We're very invested. We root for the monarchy, but we're also rooting for Harry and Meghan. And there's this conflict, you know, internally, I think this world post queen and post-spare, do you have advice for royal watchers going forward? It sounds like a lot of it is captured in the book. <laughs> I wish, and this is really a wish, um, that we were in a space where it was possible to show empathy towards a couple that have clearly been through a hell of a lot. And some things have been incredibly unfair. Um, not all of it, but certainly a lot. And at the same time, also sympathise with a royal family that's trying to continue and live in impossible circumstances and to try and understand the situations that both face and to realise that this doesn't need to be a cult part of any kind of culture war, that, we, that it is possible to exist and follow both and be interested in both sides. And I hate even calling them sides, but uh, uh, you know, ultimately that is what it is. Um, without being a traitor to one or the other. You know, I, I can't, listen, I'm sure you guys see it as well. I can't even share a story about the Sussexes without being told by a thousand people that I'm on their payroll. The reality is, is firstly, Sussex content performs much better than most other raw content. So you will find that that is the majority of what is out there. It is what four and a however many years ago, I decided that I would focus on because it was most interesting to me in the same way that there are royal correspondents who have chosen to focus on the Cambridges or royal correspondents who have chosen to focus on Camilla or Charles. Everyone has a niche within the royal space. For me, it was the Sussexes. Obviously, so much has changed since then. But I think that people read far too much into these sort of allegiances that they think are there. Um, we're in a really interesting time, I think. We have not firstly just had a book that probably we won't see the likes of for another three decades or so. So let's not forget how incredible that is just in terms of the royal story in general. But I also think let's not ignore the very real issues that the royal family face today. I think that they do an incredible job in so many ways of representing Britain on the world stage and really sort of 
having that ability, or at least with the Queen, that ability to bring together and unify people in a country at a time where we are so fractured. But I think that that doesn't necessarily exist in the same way anymore since Charles took the throne. And I think that's one of the big problems that the royal family face today is that how can they become that unifying force again? Because at the moment, it feels like they have become part of the sort of culture war that we're in, that kind of like the right wing versus the woke, you know, and I, yeah. I hate all of that. <laughs> I know, we yeah. do too. And um, I think it's funny you said, you mentioned empathy. That is my word for 2023. I think it was mm. it from the docuseries where Megan was like, choose a word yeah. and I adopted that. And I was like, I just feel like across the board, we all need to have a little bit more empathy for all the different sides and all the players in the yeah. game. Yeah, for sure. Well, we cannot wait to hear more about Endgame, your book, Omid. We're so grateful that you came on the podcast again. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will talk soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Before we adjourn the Royal Pod, here are our highs and lows. It's time for the Royal Highs and Lows. I... (laughs) There's a lot to be upset about in the book. There's a lot of allegations. But one thing I can't get over is this from part three, chapter 35. I'm going to play it for you, Rachel. Meg packed up her house, gave up her role in suits. After seven seasons, a difficult moment for her because she loved that show, loved the character she was playing, loved her cast and crew, loved Canada. On the other hand, life there had become untenable, especially on set. The show writers were frustrated because they were often advised by the Palace comms team to change lines of dialogue, what her character would do, how she would act. I'm sorry, that crosses the line. The palace <laughs> is trying to change American TV shows. Mike Get and your Rachel Zane's storyline, I'm not okay. Get your hands <laughs> off our content. If you try to meddle in our TV, I... That's line it. crossed. That's it. Over. That's it. It's also that, and it's another silly thing that is my low is that Megan had to buy the couch and the lamps from Ikea on her credit card. What is going on What is happening? What is happening? So upsetting. Milo is just Jeremy Clarkson's Apology 2.0. I think everything about this, he posted a new and pretty lengthy multiple slide statement to Instagram to say, you know, kind of this like silly old me sort of tone. Did you feel that? Where he basically chalks it up to, you know, his article, which had the Game of Thrones reference, incredibly hate-filled and inappropriate that, oh, silly me, he didn't give it a second read before filing. It wasn't me like, I'm just rushing. That's no excuse. That's no excuse. And it's just not at all okay. And I think also the revelation that he's apologized to the Sussexes, but they countered and said, actually, he only apologized to Harry. Yeah, in an envelope that said private and confidential dressed to just Harry. That's so, so awful. And I just, everything about it is, I don't ever want to hear from this man again. I 100% wholeheartedly agree, but I want to just play devil's advocate for a second. If someone apologizes to you, I guess you don't have to accept it. I don't know. I just feel like maybe they should have been like, okay, thank you for apologizing, but here's why this is so messed up. And here's the reason it's misogynistic. And here's all of our evidence. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like it it takes a lot to apologize. I'm just saying. 
Just saying. Ugh, I'm speaking for the devil. I don't know. I just still feel like it wasn't no, a right. great apology. You're, you're so right. 100%. My high is the record-breaking numbers for Spare. It's now sold 750,000 copies in the UK. Not only the fastest-selling nonfiction book of all time in the UK, but also the biggest-selling memoir. Harry's got to feel good about that. They're probably... Raising a glass of tequila, at least, I hope Tequila, for that. yes. <laughs> My high is just kind of Princess Anne. We got to talk about it. She showed up for King Constantine II's funeral. That was part of her royal duty. But it's just business as usual always for Anne. She is There's no drama attached to her, I'm sure. And we know that there was in her earlier days. But this keep on keeping on you know, mode of operation is actually a really nice palate cleanser with everything else going on right now. And to say, I mean, I guess that said, you know, the whales is everyone else is trying to do that. Maybe we expect a statement from them in a different way than we do from Anne. But I just love how business as usual Anne always is. You know I'm an Anne stan. <laughs> just a reminder before we close, leave us a royal rating. Here's a lovely review from Santa Claus, Indiana. Shout out Santa Claus, Indiana. They say, top notch. So glad I found you. Well done. There's a kindness folded in all of your knowledge. Hope it rubs off on the rest of the podcast world. <gasps> You just made our day, our week, our year. That was nice. Friends shout out. Rachel, we didn't even talk about what? Harry's references to friends throughout oh the book. Oh my gosh, God, yes. he's a friend fan, and you're the biggest friends fan of all time. friends so much. Are you a Monica Ra- uh, Rachel Chandler? So I feel like no, I don't even, I can't even choose. I feel like I love them all so equally, and I feel like Ross made that possible, that everyone got paid equally, and he just kept it alive. You couldn't love I one told over you, the other. She is the biggest friends fan of all time. Reminders to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Instagram. And till next week, we get to say it in person. God, God save the pod. Her Majesties of Royally Obsessed have retired for this episode. God save the pod. And if you fancy the podcast, give Royally Obsessed the royal rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast. And join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Royally Obsessed is a gallery podcast production.